What four video games would you spend the rest of your life playing and why? That is the question my guests will be answering as we explore what these games mean to the gamers who play them. I'm Matthew Herlow and thank you for selecting the Your Lives in Gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Your Lives in Gaming podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Herlow, and with me today we have Twitch streamer and a fellow Randomizer League collaborator, Android Dreams. How are we doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad at all, to be honest. So... I know you already have a basic understanding, but just to recap, the basic premise of the podcast as a whole is we're going to be putting you onto an imaginary desert island. With you, we are going to supply four video games, any that you choose, with obviously the necessary equipment to play them, and we're going to find out what your four picks are and why you've picked them. Now, before we get to that, though, uh, something that we do on the show, and yet again, shout out to the Most Best Podcast, who we stole this from, but uh, we will be playing Dice to Meet You. So, I'm going to roll a 20-sided die, and whatever number comes up, that's how many words you have to describe yourself. Do it as a whole sentence, uh, you can do it as just individual words, whatever you want to do. So... You have nine. Okay. Uh, so my nine words that describe myself. I've never heard this before, so that's a pretty interesting way to do an introduction. Um, but mine would be uh, Hermit who gets stuck in obsession periods with hobbies. Um, because I've noticed I have a tendency to uh, get a hold of something new and spend a lot of time with it and then move on to the next thing. And that's kind of how... I got involved with speedrunning uh, and eventually speedrunning Super Metroid was by watching it and then becoming kind of enthralled with how it worked and how the randomizer worked and all the different tricks. And I did the same thing with Zelda 1 speedrunning. I'd done the same thing with other various video games across my video game playing life. So I think that that's pretty good nine words. Fair enough. No, I definitely get that. That's something I would definitely say, at least at some points in my life, or with some hobbies, I definitely experienced, and I'm sure many people will have too. So that's, I suppose that was a great introduction. That's really, really good one. So I guess what we'll do is say thank you for that and move straight on to your first pick. So what is the first video game you're going to be taking onto the island with you? So my first pick of video game for the island is actually going to be my first speed game, which is uh, The Legend of Zelda. Oh, original Zelda. I like this one. This is a good call. So obvious first question that everyone gets. Why this game? I think that this game, I mean, this game has a lot of nostalgic value for me. It's one of the first games that I remember watching my dad play. Um, And before I played a lot of games, I remember him watching is like I have these memories of the first house that my family lived in, um, watching him play 
The Legend of Zelda and Super Mario 2. And those are really some of the only memories I have left of the first house that we ever lived in because I was very young. It's probably about three by the time we moved into the house that we I, I basically grew up in, uh, if you want to look at it that way. Um, so there's a, a big nostalgic value there, um, but also because it's just a very in-depth game as a speed game. Um, so as far as replayability goes and knowing some of the strategies for picking it up as a speed game there's a lot of longevity that can go into allowing me to play it for a very long time which if i'm stuck on an island besides surviving it seems like i'll have a lot of time on my hands <laughs> no definitely that's that's one of the beauties of the whole premise uh now in terms of the sort of longevity of the game uh to like narrow that down a bit because tracy m also picked this as one of her games and one of her points about why she loves it, and one of the things we discussed at the time was the game itself is for the era it was released, and even for a little bit after that, it's a massive game. There is so much to it, so much you can actually go and look for and find. And, I mean, if you take it out of the context of speedrunning, that, that makes it hugely replayable. But with speedrunning, even though you're cutting a lot of that out, it's still so much there to do. And with the randomizer, you need to know all that stuff. So, I mean, with the speedrunning side of this, did you get into the randomizer first or the actual game? What, what was the situation there? So I played it as a kid, um, you know, after watching my dad. I remember there was a, a, a winter break one time. It was, I, my parents had gotten an old TV for me from a friend that was just getting rid of a TV. And they put the TV in my room with the NES. And I think this was in the era where the, I think N64 had just come out. So in our living room, our family living room, the Super Nintendo and the N64 were out there. But I had the NES to myself in my room and I could play it whenever I wanted. So for a winter break, I basically just decided, like, I'm going to just play the Legend of Zelda. And the reason that I got into it so heavily was because the battery in our pack had died. But it was if you left the cartridge in the NES, it would remember your save point. But if you took it out, it would all get wiped. So I just kind of said like, well, if I can't take the game out, then I'm just going to play it until I finish it so I can finally get through this game. And I remember getting stuck in the seventh dungeon with the Gria that you have to give the bait to. And I had no idea what the point of the bait even was. Like, I remember you buy it and you put it on a area of the map around some enemies and like, they don't go to it or they don't get distracted by it or anything. And I just thought it was like this really pointless thing. And it took me forever. I think I was at the point where I was just in the room pushing or activating every single item that I could. And when I finally put out the meat and was able to get by, it was like that moment of like, okay, I definitely got to get through this now because like that was like one of the biggest stepping stones to actually finishing the game. And it was done at a time for me where um, I didn't have a guide for it. The internet wasn't prolific enough to find uh, this kind of stuff. I'm not even sure my house had the internet when I actually completed Zelda one for the first time. But yeah, to go on Tracy's point as well, the, the world is huge and the game has high replayability because of how much stuff there is to do. Like I know that first quest world pretty much inside and out due to playing the randomizer. 
but I don't really know the second quest. So there's actually an aspect of the randomizer that I'm still not really up to speed on. But I got into uh, playing Zelda as a kid. And then the speed gaming aspect of Zelda 1 um, came into my life from the Summoning Salt videos, actually. the uh, He does the history or the world record progression of certain games. I know he's not the only one, but he's definitely one of the mo- most well-known uh, historians of speed gaming uh, on YouTube. And I watched the Legend of Zelda episode and started seeing like some of the different strategies and some of the stuff they were talking about, like as far as like keeping track of your bombs to force bomb drops and then like the drop table that's not random that keeps like on a global counter Uh, and hearing about all that stuff made me realize that there's a lot more to the game. And I wanted to see like, well, can I can I beat this game in a certain amount of time? So um, the vanilla game speedrun came first. And then through there, I found the randomizer through a, a tournament that they were doing. I think it was the 2016 uh, randomizer tournament where they did shapes in the dungeons, but the Swiss portion was only first quest overworld. So it was like perfect for my understanding of the game at the time. And then the shapes being like random, the dungeon shapes being random just makes it have, I mean, I've, I don't know how many seeds I've played. It's second to Super Metroid randomizer seeds still, but it's a lot. With... One thing you mentioned there, when you were talking about when you were ahead, you had the NES in your room, you got you know sort of stuck on stuck on that game because of the problem with the battery. Roughly, how old would you have been around that time? I think I was probably like twelve, twelve or thirteen. Okay, cool. Uh, just just to get an idea of you know the the understanding of games as it were for the age, because a lot of these older games uh, it comes up quite a lot, obviously, with when you're talking about them. But a lot of the older games are artificially harder because they they give you nothing they tell you nothing it's sort of go and do what you do and find what you find sort of thing so it's always interesting to see sort of like where you were when you were playing when when you were struggling with that but move on from that a little bit so when you were talking about the speed running there I'm not overly familiar with the speedrun or the randomizer for Zelda 1. I have seen a couple of matches of the randomizer, but I don't really know the game well enough to fully get what's going on everywhere. So one of the things with that was you mentioned the second quest. How exactly does that work with it? Is it just like having a different flag set within the game type deal? So you're either racing one or the other, or do they tie together in some way? Uh, the way that it works within the randomizer, and I, I don't even know when my last randomizer update was. I don't, I'm not sure Fred Coughlin's ever going to listen to this, but sorry, I haven't updated in a couple of years. But it, and it comes down to like, um, cave entrances or like bomb spots or burning bu- uh, bushes that you can burn or, uh, stairwells that open up if you use the whistle. So for example, in the first quest, the only part of the map that's uh, the overworld map that's affected by using the whistle is the entrance to dungeon seven and in second quest i think there's at least three different map tiles that are affected by or give you an entrance by using the whistle so the difference would be in the randomizer is that you can do first quest only you can do second quest only and i think that you can even randomize if it does first or second quest throughout the whole seed 
I'm not sure if it can combine them like to do first and second quest as possible because that that seems like that'd be a little bit too much. But maybe by now they're into that sort of thing. Um, There's also some other differences as far as how you can navigate through dungeons. In the dungeons, there are certain block pattern rooms that once all the enemies are defeated, if there's a stairwell in that room, you have to push a certain block. And there are different rooms between first and second quest that those block pushes are uh, able to happen. So that would be another way to like if you're in the randomizer and you get into a dungeon early and you're not sure if you're in first quest or second quest logic you could possibly push a different block in a, in a certain room to find out and if you get a stairwell then you might know how oh, this is only an option in first quest or only an option in second quest and then in second quest there's also through the dungeons there's actually false walls so there's uh walls that look like you can't bomb through them but you can just walk through them if you push into them for like a second or two Um, So that's another way that you can know if you're in second quest logic is if you are in a completely blocked off room, but you can still walk through the false wall. Okay, so so it mostly does come down to just the general differences between the first and second quest in a sense. I do have some knowledge of the game, but it's a very casual knowledge of the game. And much like yourself, second quest wasn't ever something that I did. Uh, Tracy M, on the other hand, just to mention was a massive fan of Second Quest. Really? Yeah, she she herself had it when she was young, uh, played all through First and Second Quest. I would genuinely suggest listening to the podcast just so you can hear that bit of it when she's talking about Zelda because it's, it's a really fun discussion. And you know Tracy, she's, she's interesting to talk to anyway, but it was really cool to hear her talk about a game that, to be honest, I had no idea she was so into. Yeah, I didn't actually know. That's funny because I've definitely been in her stream like when she's playing Combo or uh, Link to the Past. And I don't think we've ever actually talked about the fact that we both like that game as much as we do. No, it's one of those strange things, especially like I know you through the Super Metroid community. I know Tracy through that. You know Tracy through that. And then because, for example, I've never seen her stream Zelda 1, you never think about it as it were. So... It comes as a bit of a surprise when you do hear about it then. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point. There's a few people that I know cross over the Zelda 1 to uh, Super Metroid community, but I don't think I've ever seen Tracy and any of the streamers that I watch, which I really would just watch Black Attack and Random Effect every once in a while. Occasionally I'll catch RC Drone, but I think we're on pretty different schedules. That's fair. Uh, so, having done the speedrun for both you know, the standard speed run and also being big in the randomizer. Have you got a preference between the two? I think that the vanilla game, like the regular speed running is something that I'm more interested in focusing on. Like I do enjoy the randomizer to just kind of break up the normal game every once in a while, but it's not something it's, it's not like the super Metroid randomizer for me where I want to speed run it. It's just more something that I do for fun. Uh, and kind of do to relax and play it more on a casual note. Even when it comes to tracking, I actually track my Zelda 1 randomizers on just graph paper. So I'll draw out a 16 by 8 grid for the overworld, and I'll mark it with different letters or uh, numbers for what I have already visited or what I might need to go back to. I'll even draw out all the different um, item shop because uh, that's one of the things that ra- is randomized is the different items that appear in the shops and then the rarity of four different shops. So I'll even mark those one, you know, sh- shop one through shop four 
to know, okay, if I need to go pick up bombs or if I need to go back and buy arrows because I'm arrow blocked somewhere, I know where I need to go. Uh, but the the vanilla game for me is just something that I, I, I play for longer periods of time. It's also something that I will kind of avoid for longer periods of time because the grind, um, I've, I've been grinding Super Metroid any percent a little bit lately. And I do think that the Zelda one grind is a little bit more cumbersome just with how much there is to do, I guess. I think that the way that you approach the Super Metroid speedrun for any percent and the Zelda 1 speedrun for any percent are pretty different. Super Metroid is more like planning each individual room. And Zelda 1 is you plan for the next room, but the way that the enemies can randomize their movement or where, when or how they attack you makes it a little bit harder to like room grinding doesn't make as much sense like it does when you're practicing for Super Metroid. And it, I think that there's a certain tier of speedrunning Zelda one where it will get better, like uh, as far as grinding individual rooms, because I know a lot of the the movement patterns are dependent on how many map rooms you visited as opposed to like what frame you're on. So the more consistent you can be with your with what um, map tiles you're always visiting, the more similar the game's going to be every time. And one of the interesting things with Zelda 1 is, is like with Super Metroid, if you decide I'm going to cut out picking up the crazy tank in my speed run to save, you know, 10 seconds or 13 seconds or whatever that ends up saving you in the long run, the rest of your run is still pretty much played the same way. Whereas if you decided to do that in Zelda 1, like if you said, oh, I'm not going to go navigate to this area because I don't need these rupees to buy the blue ring, like I'm going to cut the blue ring out of my runs. Um, the the rest of the game from when you change your route is going to be different. So then you would have to like relearn different enemy patterns and stuff like that. So it's changing it up and trying to save time really changes like the outcome of the rest of the game so drastically that you're kind of playing something completely different when you're looking for those time saves. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, it sounds like two wildly different experiences of speed gaming or speed running, I should say. For me, in terms of speedrunning, the only game I've really done it with is Super Metroid. I do have 100% for Zero Mission, because I took part in the tournament. But to say that I spent any time beyond just learning the basic route would be, well, an insult to anyone who actually made efforts. So, <laughs> you know... I, I was just really... like I'd been playing Zero Mission at the time, really enjoyed it, really got into it. But that is a very similar speed run between Super Metroid and Zero Mission for obvious reasons. Metroid Zero Mission, same franchise, same style of game. However, the difference between like learning Zelda 1 and learning something like Super Metroid sounds quite insanely different. I get they're completely different games, but you learn such different things with them. It sounds quite wild, to be honest. Yeah, it is. I mean, as starting as somebody that was playing Zelda 1, coming over to Super Metroid recently, like I just started playing Super Metroid Vanilla within the last month, basically. It's a way different animal because like when you're doing practice in Super Metroid, like I'm doing some room grinding with the ROMs or something, I can have people pop into my chat. Like a lot of the people that have been helping me a lot in the community are like Hero82 and Woody uh, and a couple other people, uh, Nady. 
um, they can, you know, they can come in and say, hey, why don't you try doing this in this room instead, like go off this ledge or use this wall or freeze that enemy or do this or that. That's just not the case in Zelda one. Like, it's really an observational game of like, you have to if you want to learn boss patterns uh, or like enemy patterns, like you really do just kind of have to stand in a room and watch them just walk around and see what they're going to do. And it's still not even the easiest thing to sit there and go, okay, well, every time this enemy walks this way, the next thing that he's going to do is this. So I mean, I know that it's not perfect in Super Metroid, but it's definitely a little bit easier to figure out than it is in Zelda one. That is it's interesting to hear, as I say, especially as someone who's literally really only ever speedrun the one game, and to be honest, I'm really not that into the speedrun of Super Metroid, uh, especially any percent. I am not a fan of the grind, and funny that you should mention Hero 82 there, because I know a lot of guys within the community who, whether he's helping them or whether he's just there showing some support, have mentioned that he's a really positive guy to have in your stream when you're doing the ambient grind because I don't know what, how best to describe it he just sort of wills you on if you will yeah he he is really good about I, I think that one of the things that helps me the most from Hero is just how succinct he can be in explaining something so like he's got a really good knack for you know, if there's five different uh, platforms in a room, he's really good at describing exactly which one from the perspective of the room that you can look at and figure out, okay, that's what he's talking about. And there are times in Super Metroid where somebody can be explaining something to you and it's like, it's almost like they're talking in a different language because their concept of how the room works is, can be so much different from yours that it's it's hard to figure out what they're trying to help you with for a little while until you can kind of pin it down. Fair enough. So yeah, shout out to Hero 82. So let's move on a little bit because we're sort of sidetracking off uh, Zelda as it is anyway, and we've already had a pretty interesting bit about that. So let's just jump straight into the next one. What is your second game that you're going to be taking to the island with you? So my second game is going to be my other speed game. So we we this actually transitioned pretty nicely into talking about some Super Metroid. Yeah, that's not too bad. We've already got started in a sense. Now, inevitably, especially given that most of the people I've interviewed so far, I met through the Super Metroid community. This is a game that has come up a lot, and I expect it to continue to come up as we go forward. So... Might as well get straight to it. For you, why Super Metroid? This is another nostalgia game for me. I I have my original Super Metroid Player's Choice cart still. It's one of the few... It's interesting because the Super Nintendo is the one console that I wouldn't give to my brother after he had kids. So he has kids there, uh, I think 12 and 9. And so they're like really a really good age to be getting started with video games. And so at the time I had, I think, everything, the NES, the N64 and the SNES. And he asked if I could send them out to him so he could play some games with his girls. And I said, sure, you can have the NES and the Super or in the N64, but I'm going to keep the SNES. Um, and it's part of it's because I mean, I don't currently play on the console, but I would just really, I, that's like the one console that I'm like, I want to make sure that this one stays. 
good to go and that it has the longevity to be played for if I ever want to have kids that they can play on the original hardware. But um, my first experience with Super Metroid, I actually borrowed the game from my neighbor. I think I was probably about 12 or 13. I mean, I, I, I played a lot of games ever since I was probably like four, at least as far back as I can remember. But uh, we had a neighbor that had a lot of different games that we used to borrow. Um, and one of them one time was Super Metroid. And I very distinctly remember playing, trying to play through this game on my own. Again, it's at the time where uh, the Internet's not really big enough, at least where I was, to be able to look up a walkthrough or anything like that, have no player's guide. I don't think at the time I even had kept the old Nintendo Power um, that because we were my family was subscribers to Nintendo Power for a very long time. But we did get rid of some of the older ones as time went on, just because my mom didn't want to be a Nintendo Power library. <laughs> um, so uh, this was one of the, another you know gaming era where you're figuring out everything for yourself, and that's kind of like the badge of honor at the time. You know, we didn't have gamer points and achievements. Your achievement was being able to go to your neighbor and be like, "I beat this game" or "I beat this boss" when you're both playing through it at the same time. But um, I remember getting lost. Uh, where at the point where you're supposed to go fight Kraid. I found the high jump boots, but I kept going into the heated rooms and not knowing what to do. And I kind of got stuck there. So I kind of, I just saved and I, I quit and I got discouraged because I couldn't figure out what to do. It didn't dawn on me the thing that I was supposed to do. Because as we touched on with Zelda, you know, this is another game that they don't, they don't tell you anything. They don't give you any signs or arrows and tell you exactly where to go. You kind of got to, explore and figure it out on your own and i reset the game and there's my neighbor's save files and i kind of just got curious it's like well i wonder what happened with my neighbor and the save file that i fired up was the last save in turian uh where you can't go back and once you save there that's where your game is uh, until you <laughs> until you clear it i guess um, and, you know, seeing that he had everything, like I think he had basically had close to 100% item collection of at least, if not 100, all of the up suit upgrades and all the beam upgrades and all the stuff and just seeing all the stuff he had. And I didn't even finish the game from there. I just saw that what he had and was kind of playing around with the, the with Samus and that profile and went, well, obviously I can get farther than where I am. So I went back into the game, <laughs> into my file. And I eventually started bombing everything and found the super missile blocks to enter the crate area. And that was one of the accomplishments, kind of like in Zelda one with the, the Gurria where you have to drop the bait that made me go, this is an awesome game. I want to keep going. I want to figure out all the different secrets. And uh, yeah, that was, that was like the moment that as a kid made me really appreciate what super Metroid is. Okay, now that's actually an interesting way to look at it, and I never really considered it because probably my first playthrough would have been when I was like six, seven years old. So I've never really would have thought about it at the time, and I'd never really considered it until you just pointed that out. But that moment of finding Kraid within the context of gaming, particularly in that era, as you say, it is actually a, a fair old achievement because. There is nothing at all in the game that indicates go here, look over here. You really have to actually go and be looking for it yourself. I suppose as well, because I had older brothers, it was just something that I always knew was there. So 
I'd never really looked like that. That's really interesting, to be honest. Yeah, that's another thing that you mentioned that made me, and another thing I thought about was, I think this was really like the first thing that taught me something that me and my childhood friends referred to as video game intuition, uh, which is knowing how video games work. Because one of the things that is hard to get, like if you have a friend that doesn't play video games or even says, I don't like video games, they've probably played something that required some level of video game intuition. And when I say that phrase, what I mean by that is the the way that it, when you enter a video game or when you're playing a video game and you see something that doesn't look right, your natural idea at that point after somebody who's played a lot of games is to think that there's something weird and that you need to do something there like whether it's try to open it with an item or just go up and touch it and see why it's weird or go up to it and see if you can interact with it and that's that's just something that you get from playing video games and if you've never played video games and somebody gives you a game like super metroid or like zelda well zelda 2 is another (laughs) whole different animal when it comes to that kind of stuff honestly but um, that, that, that that's what teaches you to behave that way in video games. That's why when you, as you played more video games and you got older, you would just do random stuff in rooms that might make, you know, like if my parents or even my brother who didn't play as much as I did go like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And you can just say like, well, it looks weird. So I'm going to see if it does anything. And it's like, that's video game intuition. I definitely understand what you're talking about there because as soon as you started talking, I was just like, do you know what? I know instantly friends of mine who I've played games with, whether it's something specifically in that context or just picking up a style of game that they've never played before and just not really getting what they need to do. I have definitely experienced that multiple times in my life. And in fact, one of my good friends who I hope to get on for a future episode who only recently has got more into gaming is the perfect example of that so i'm definitely gonna end up bringing that up to him at some point but you make some excellent points with that there and it's it's an interesting concept that i don't like i fully understand it you can see it when you watch other people play games you know when you're doing it but i suppose i never really considered it because well I've got a bunch of brothers, they're all gamers, so it's something, again, that for me has just been part and parcel of everyday life. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept. Let's move back to Super Metroid a little bit. Uh, so you said you've only recently started running vanilla stuff, so that would tell me that you definitely started out with the randomized run this game. Yes, that is that is correct. And the Zelda 1 randomizer is how I learned about the Super Metroid randomizer. When I first started watching the Zelda 1 randomizer tournament, you know, I just had one of the speed gaming channels on and the next race afterwards was a Super Metroid randomizer tournament. Maybe it was the 2017 tournament. It was the last tournament before the season one of the Super Metroid randomizer league. I remember that, but I remember I remember it was in the playoffs uh, at this point. I don't remember exactly who it was, but it was two very good uh, Super Metroid players racing. And I just watching them, I was like, oh, I, I, I love Super Metroid. I could get into this. And I found all the VODs on YouTube of that tournament. And I remember at work, I would just have my cell phone up because I just did 
some data processing at the time is fairly mindless and would just listen to the different races, just all almost all 300 of them uh, while I was at work, I think. And when I would hear a, like a phrase about a different glitch uh, or possibly like a different like some of the different rooms or some of the different strategies for getting through the rooms. Every once in a while, I would have to rewind to make sure I know what they were talking about as far as the video game lingo goes, because the speedrunning community, obviously, has got terms for everything. So it's, it's something that when you're not familiar with it, you got to kind of get up to speed. But um, started with the with watching the randomizer and then eventually got, I think I was in Antinomy's channel one day. Uh, Antinomy was one of the people that I really took a shine to as far as recognizing through commentary on the matches that I would watch. His personality and his sense of humor is something that lines up very well with mine. So he was one of the people that I had first really looked out for on Twitch to see. And it was right after he changed his name. Um, so when he was doing commentary, he was Sephiloft. And then when I was looking for him, he was already Antinomy. And I could not figure out for a long time why I couldn't find him on Twitch until somebody raided Antinomy. And then I stuck around long enough to realize that it was it was Sephi. Um, but Sephi and Freya's, they were the people that hooked me up with a ROM, a clean ROM, because I was having trouble finding one. I'm kind of nervous when it comes to downloading stuff like that on the internet. Um, so they were nice enough to provide me with a copy of the vanilla ROM so I could make my own seeds and just started playing them to get through them just to see, like, can I beat the seed? Uh, can I and, you know, learn? Can I learn the tricks to beat these seeds? And then eventually started playing it. I think I played it. I, pl I played it close to every day for almost a year straight when I first started playing the randomizer, at least one seed a day. I was I had been playing it for a while. And then in somebody's stream, they're like, oh, are you going to join the randomizer league and i think there was a week left with signups on the first season of super metroid randomizer league and i didn't even know because i wasn't in any of the super metroid discords or the randomizer discord or anything like that um and i was just like i don't know i don't know what it is and i was pretty on the fence about it and i think i signed up on the very last day just going you know what what's the worst that can happen it probably will be a lot of fun and i'm very glad that i did that because it's really i mean it's been close to four years now for as long as I've been playing Super Metroid Randomizer. And I've met a lot of really cool people. Um, like we talked about Hero and Woody. They were kind of some of my first races. Um, of course, uh, now being on the uh, an administrator with you and Tracy and all the other people that have helped out with uh, all the stuff. It's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been really gratifying to see the administration side and like the broadcast side and realize how much effort is put into these leagues. Um, but it's been a really good experience. One thing I will say there, I hope from joining us on the admin side of things that you have come to understand that please don't sign up for tournaments on the last possible day because <laughs> that first season we were... Well, everything was happening on the fly. We literally got it up and going, got sign-ups going, you know, within sort of like a week, two weeks of discussing it. And like I was like, oh well, I'll, I'll do the schedules. So I've already got some stuff from like uh, sports stuff that I've been involved in in real life that I can 
you know, just adapt to what we need and so on. And then we were like, okay, we're going to try and make sure we include everybody who enters. And we ended up like a really weird number, like 73 people. Then organizing that into groups and then scheduling it. It's, oh, it was so much fun. So much fun. Yeah, I definitely, like, looking back, no. Like, I mean, part of my reason for joining at the last minute wasn't really... It, it was really mostly due to just not really knowing if I wanted to commit to how long the first season was. Because it was like 18 weeks or 16 weeks. Yeah. And, so it was too long, know, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm I'm married. I've been a gamer for most of my life. I have not been married for most of my life. So <laughs> in an effort to make sure that I can stay married and a gamer, you know, there's compromise and stuff within relationships not even just marriage um even just interpersonal relationships or work relationships you you do eventually have to decide like is this more important than gaming or is am i my description of myself is one of the couple of the words were obsession periods well that can really interfere with <laughs> with real life commitments and <laughs> the things that you need to do to make sure that the people in your life want to stay part of it no that's fair well one thing i will say is fair warning for you if you do decide to have children, expect that gaming time to come down because uh, my little one will be two uh, this coming week, in fact, and I love him to bits, but I haven't been able to play a video game during the daytime or at least probably <laughs> sit there and play one during the daytime for two years now, more or less. So... Be prepared. That's all I'm going to say. I'm sure as they get older, it gets a little bit easier on that front. But, you know, if I got a game a little bit less, that's really the least of my problems in life. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I that's definitely something that I'm, I'm well aware of. My wife and I both are aware of it. She's not a gamer. But as far as just like stuff that we want to do, uh, whether it's travel or you know, like even buying a house like that we did last year, there was, of course, different stuff that we went, well, we should definitely do this if we do have a kid before we do have a kid. But definitely, yeah. I mean, that's just having your life in order. So credit where it's due because you've got that covered. I mean, I, I often think that I don't. But then when I think about it, I'm OK, you know. <laughs> We, uh, <laughs> yeah, we 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 own our house. I've got the kids. He's absolutely fine. He's absolutely hilarious. But let's backtrack a little bit because we're going a bit off topic here. Let's go back for a moment to Super Metroid. Obviously, we talked a bit about the randomizer. So, what's recently had you deciding that you wanted to run some vanilla categories? Then the recent influx of free time uh, or at least being home uh, to fuel my desire to be a hermit has definitely contributed to this. The original plan to do some Super Metroid vanilla speedrunning was that when I first started streaming, one of my goals was to play through all of the titles on the SNES Classic. And then Super Metroid Randomizer League Season 1 started and that goal has not been accomplished because of <laughs> distractions still. Um, but my my original plan was I'm going to play through all the stuff on the SNES Classic. And then for when I beat Super Metroid, that's when the, the beating of Super Metroid is actually going to be the beginning of speedrunning the vanilla game. But that didn't really happen when I first started streaming. And then after the first season of 
randomizer league ended, I took a break from Super Metroid because it was a long season. Um, <laughs> and I started playing, I think I was playing Apex Legends for a while because my friends were playing uh, a bunch of different BRs and I was hearing about it and it sounded cool. So I played that for a little while, basically until season two of the randomizer league started. And then I got back into Super Metroid. But I had gone on a trip to Malaysia in February. I, my wife and I went, we were supposed to be there for nine weeks for work. We both worked at the same company. And with all the stuff that happened, we ended up coming back after just a month. So uh, we come home. The world is a completely different place. We're home a lot more. We work from home now. And uh, we, because we both work together, uh, and we basically have our offices back to back. We're able to share our frustrations about work in a different way than two people that both have jobs but don't work together because we can really empathize with each other what they're going through because our, our jobs are so similar. Um, so one of the ways that we cope with that is that we end up having a lot of uh, downtime from each other in the evenings. So because we're not able to go out and distract ourselves like we could before, I've found myself focusing on my stream more and my wife has been watching some different shows and learning how to sew and taking on some different hobbies. So that's kind of how we are able to kind of stay sane in this time when you already spend so much time together. I mean, our, our, we feel like our lives are the opposite of all the other married couples or <laughs> long-term dating couples that we know is because, you know, their relationship is like their escape from work or something like that. But we have so many different instances where one person will say something about work and then it just spirals out of control into this like rage fest and our way to kind of not do that is to just have some alone time well that makes a lot of sense to be honest especially if you work so closely together as well it sounds very much like you're basically doing the same work or working alongside each other regularly anyway not that i want to talk about work too much we basically have the same job, but just on different teams. But there's so much crossover between what we do. We know each other's teammates and all this stuff. You know, it's it's not like before we work together, it'd just be like, oh, yeah, this happened at work today and it's it was bad. But, you know, if she says somebody's name, I don't know who it is. So, you know, all I can really say is, go, oh, that sucks. Or that person sounds like they're a jerk. <laughs> but now I know if that person's a jerk or I know that they suck. So it's way too easy for me to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that first bit there basically sums up every conversation I have with my girlfriend about work, where <laughs> she's like, I was really annoyed just having to deal with this person. And I'm just sort of, yeah, they sound like they really, really suck. And I'm like, I had free lunch at work today. <laughs> like that, that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the sort of way our conversation goes. I, I do feel a little bit bad, but I also find it very funny when I think about it. But like you say, let's talk about too bogged down in talking about work because that is not <laughs> what we're here for so as i mentioned we've spoken about super metroid on this podcast a lot with other people we've had your take on your relationship with super metroid now so let's move on from super metroid but before we go on to your third pick and we're kind of backtracking a little bit into when you were talking about super metroid earlier uh, something I like to ask everyone is about their first memories in gaming or what got them into gaming. Now, you already touched on memories of you know your father playing games when you were very young, you playing games when you were very young. But 
what specifically is the first thing you can remember that you think about it now and you're like, that's what made me a gamer? Uh, the first thing that made me a gamer was when my family had rented the first Mega Man for NES. And I, I'm probably five at this point in time. And I remember watching my brother struggle with the beginning of Gutsman stage where it has the platforms that are on the tracks. And when the track disappears, the platform drops down. And so, you know, it first gives you one that doesn't drop and then it lets you see what happens when it goes over the gap. And he was really struggling with that. And I was the person that figured out like, well, you got to wait and, you know, you got to time everything around when these platforms interact with the track. It was it was helping my older brother do something that he wasn't he wasn't figuring out on his own. And that was when I realized that video games have something that draws me and continues to draw me to them to this day, which is I enjoy solving problems. I enjoy seeing having like a visual uh, in front of me that presents a challenge and figuring out how to conquer that challenge. Um, so that's, I mean, besides the part wa- you have watched, I, I remember distinctly watching my dad beat Wart for the first time in Super Mario Brothers 2, the first time that he ever had beat that game. And um, that's my earliest memory of video games. But the one that made me know and made me enjoy games was was hanging out with my brother and and figuring that out with him. I really like that it was Mega Man 1 for you because one of the earliest games that I remember playing and very similar thing, playing with my brothers, getting into the game through that, was Mega Man 2 on the NES. So that's really cool. It's, it's always good to hear you know a similar experience, even though it is different. So don't have to hang around too long on this as i just like to ask just to get an idea of where you came into gaming and what drew you into it let's move on from that and something we were chatting about before we actually start recording was the longevity of games or i suppose in some way the survivability of certain games is another way of looking at it so with your experience in gaming, how has that changed over the years for you? And are there any games in particular that you can think of that were sort of like, oh man, that game was perfect for this time, but it just wouldn't work now sort of thing? Yeah, so my my video game timeline went you know, from in childhood, growing up, NES, SNES, N64, and then my family didn't buy a new console after the N64. Um, one of my friends had got a GameCube, and so I went, you know, especially because Smash uh, Melee basically launched, I think it was like a week late, but um, with the game. And so we just played that. And that was kind of where games shifted from a single player playthrough campaign experience into more multiplayer focused. And even though we had an N64 and we had GoldenEye and we had, we played Perfect Dark and we had, you know, different wrestling games and Mario Kart and Diddy Kong Racing. And I, I, you know, my family played those games together. My dad loved racing games when we were kids. Um, I think that I was still, you know, there was gaming with family and there was me playing through single player campaign on my own. But after the N64 era is when 
gaming shifted into more of like a competitive idea as far as the thing that I enjoy about gaming now is showing my friends that I'm better than them. And of course, that generation also is where, you know, the Xbox came around and where Halo came out. Um, So then, you know, we, we spent a number of years playing Smash Brothers and I think Nightfire for GameCube and one of the other James Bond games because it had this really fun settings in multiplayer where you could do like low gravity and you could also use a grappling hook. So you could just kind of like float around and fly around the rooms. <laughs> we played a lot of that. Um, but then then Halo happened. Like, you know, one of our friends got an Xbox and one of our other friends got an Xbox and we had just gotten high speed internet where I grew up. I grew up in a really small town in, in rural Colorado where we didn't get stuff uh, when it first started coming around. So getting high-speed internet was like this new thing at the time. We didn't even really know what to do with it, besides that we didn't have to use a dial-up modem anymore. (laughs) But then we started having some LAN parties, um, playing Halo uh, Championship Edition, and that was you know a further shift into competitive gaming is trying to be better than your friends. And then the main point of, of what I wanted to talk about here is when online play became more prolific and that's really with Halo 2. And that's where I feel like gaming really took a turn for me because starting with Halo 2, I rarely played a campaign or a single player. You know, I might have played a game single player occasionally or but not as intensely as I played Halo 2 and then eventually Call of Duty Modern Warfare and Halo 3 and uh, games like that. But the way that I approached the the desert island gaming concept is that I wouldn't have access to the internet. So that actually kind of does limit the randomizer aspect of Super Metroid unless there somebody else has a randomizer that you can download. Like you you would kind of need the internet to get on like the Varia website or the website that Total uses for Well, his I know stuff. the Total Tournament randomizer. Someone did make a ROM with I don't remember exactly how many, but it's a lot of seed possibilities so and i mean i i've been fairly lenient about these things in the past given the concept of the show <laughs> yeah so i'd be willing to let you have a bunch of preloaded randomized seeds to play so yeah don't worry about that you're fine <laughs> okay but good the online games unfortunately yeah that is a little bit of a different like it's not necessarily online but one of the games that jay chalk picked was uh, I think it was one of the Rock Band games. And okay, his idea at the time, I think he hadn't really thought it all the way through, was that, you know, oh, well, I can play Rock Band with people. And then when we were talking about it, I think he realized that, oh, no, wait, I can only play Rock Band by myself. <laughs> <laughs> like, still a lot of value in the pick, especially if you're a fan of those games, which I know Jay is. So... I, I can see why it makes sense, but that's one of those things where, well, this game is great. Oh, actually, I, that wouldn't work because that isn't a game that was great for me to play on my own sort of thing. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, different people growing up in different areas are going to have different experiences because if, like, another variant of this concept is could actually be like if you could go back to a period of gaming as opposed to being stuck on an island with certain games because like for me it you know if that was a possibility 
the the peak of Halo 2 online multiplayer would be a time period I would love to revisit because it was just it was just such a different time. It's kind of crazy how much games have evolved while staying the same at this point. But, you know, that was before a lot of different stuff uh, as far as what you can or can or what you should or shouldn't say in an online forum. You know, this was really when online gaming was the Wild West and you could get away with a lot. And uh, it was it was just a really interesting time, but also just that I, I spent so many hours playing Halo 2 online like that was that was just a completely different period from how I had gamed growing up. But, you know, it, it, with the, in the concept of going back to a time, somebody that might have grown up in a city and maybe like a few years older than me might have a fonder memory of, say, um, playing Mortal Kombat for the arcade or like there maybe they had a really popular arcade where people would do Friday tournaments for Street Fighter or whatever they might want to go back to that period because it's like that competitive era of gaming for them in their history. Okay, that's interesting. I'll pretend like that was a bonus question for you. And you have decided that if you could go to any era in gaming, it would be to the height of Halo 2 on its online heyday. Which, to be honest, I personally didn't really get into it at the time. The Halo games were something that, for me, when they came out, it was like, yeah, they're not bad, but I don't get what's special about it. And I'm kind of the same now. Like, I like the games. They're fun games. Personally, I find them massively overhyped, but finding overhyped games is not a hard thing to do these days. So, you know. No, it's not. Yeah, and it really just comes down to, like, if, and this is a huge reason why Halo 2 wouldn't even come close to my list. Like I, there was a cut, there was a few struggles along the way to figure out what four games I should actually, would actually want to pick. And I, one of the things I thought about was, okay, well, what have I played the most? And I was like, well, I played a lot of League of Legends, but I don't want to play that game ever again. So that's definitely not going on. <laughs> um, and it's like, and I played a lot of Halo 2, but I only played online. I, I don't even know if I opened the single player campaign, like personally, so I have no attachment to it in that way. It's only <laughs> the online multiplayer. No, I get that. I think, in a way, that's also probably part of why it never clicked for me. And it's not the only game. There's plenty of series that I've had a similar thing with. But for me, personally, I always want to play a single-player campaign first. Uh, there's very few games where I'm up for multiplayer from the outset. Usually they are multiplayer-only games. But... Particularly in that era for me, uh, multiplayer was still, you know, your friends are in your house, sofa co-op or sofa competitive, whatever you want to call it. That would have been my multiplayer gaming. So online gaming as well was super inconsistent because it wasn't necessarily the case that all of my friends had the same consoles or that they all had an internet connection that they could use for it. So it was a bit inconsistent on that front for me. But I, I get it. I do get it because I've played a lot of other games where I've gone on to multiplayer after really enjoying the solo campaign and be like, oh, wow, this is way better than the solo campaign was. And I like that. So I can see why you would do that. And I did enjoy Halo 2 when I played it. So I, yeah, I can't, I can't criticize too much. Like I say, I was never part of that experience at the time. I think a lot of the draw to the online component when Halo 2 came out was 
you know, I had two friends with Xboxes and they lived, they lived on the same block. So me and there's basically four of us. Uh, and so me and one of my other friends would drive up to one of those friends house and we would set up TVs on the opposite side of the room using their, their LAN uh, adapter. And we would just take turns like swapping teammates and playing two versus two deathmatch and all this, you know, capture the flag and stuff like that with Halo one. And then Halo two came out and it was like, you mean we can all four be playing on our own screens at the same time on a team of four against another team of four. And we can just do it as often as, and as much as we want. Like that's, you know, that was, it was just a complete game changer as far as how we played and saw video games at the time. Um, it, it, it just, it just stuck for us. I still talk to these friends regularly. I mean, I've known these friends since I was like six years old. We still talk every day because we've been able to keep connected through college and after college. And it's all been through gaming. I like it. Given how few of the people who I was friends with in school that I still see, speak to, or who I'm particularly friendly with, that's really nice to hear because I suppose when I look at it, a lot of my friends when I was younger were not gamers, not in the slightest. There has literally been times when I was young where I was made fun of because I played video games. And I can guarantee you right now that almost all of those people who made fun of me are playing video games at some point these days. It's just the way the world has gone. But it's an interesting thing the the change there because i suppose one thing when you mentioned the the whole online game and you know you can set your own tv in your own house all of that i suppose when i think about it i've also had pcs and been playing pc games for the vast majority of my game in life and i suppose in a way that also is something that changed it because before consoles were capable of doing their online facilities I was doing it on the PC, so it, it wasn't something new to me. That's actually something I didn't really even think about. And the reason that I didn't really consider it is because when I was growing up, my family always had a, a Macintosh or an Apple computer. And it was because my mom worked at the elementary school and you were extended a discount, you know, the educator's discount from Apple at the time, even if you wanted to buy a personal computer. So we always had a Mac and they didn't really... You know, they had some games, uh, but it wasn't like what you could do with Windows. No, yeah. And I mean, the gaming landscape was wildly different at that time. You know, gaming in fairness is wildly different now from what it was two, three years ago. But let's move on a little bit from this, because as interesting as it has been, I'm curious to find out what your third video game for the island will be, please. Okay, uh, third game for the island, and I do find this answer ironic because I'm on an island, is uh, SSX3, uh, which is a snowboarding game. <laughs> SSX3 isn't tricky. That's a different one, isn't it? No, tricky is SSX2, technically. Right, there we go, yeah. I remember these games. I loved these games when I was younger. I am actually really sad that you've now mentioned it, that I don't currently have one. So let's get on with it. Why SSX3? So I played all of the SSX games up to that point. Um, I remember when PlayStation 2 launched, it had SSX. And my cousin's uh, dad or my uncle 
was is he was a Marine and he was stationed in Korea and in America. You could not find a PlayStation 2 the Christmas that it came out basically to save your life. But my uncle in Korea did find one and he sent it back to his son for Christmas. And I remember going and playing. And I remember when he said like the games that he got with it were like Smugglers Run 2 and SSX. And I was like, I've never heard of either of these games. <laughs> um, but we we started playing them and you know the first SSX just was kind of like a racing snowboard game where you you could race the tracks and you could compete for high scores doing tricks on the tracks and SSX Tricky uh, one of my friends had for GameCube and it's the same friend that I have known since first grade that we've stayed in touch with used to play Smash Brothers and uh, Nightfire with all the time but he had Tricky, and it was basically an upgrade of that game. More characters, new tricks, um, different courses, some old courses. But same, same concept, which is racing and doing tricks for high scores on these different tracks. SSX3, though, the reason that I picked that over the other two is because it's a combination of a, of a sandbox game, as, as much as a snowboarding game can be a sandbox game, and what the previous SSX games were. And that's what I like about it so much is that by the time you have everything unlocked, you can actually start at the very top of peak three and race all the way down and explore all the way down the different backcountry sections and different racetracks on those different peaks all the way to the base of the mountain. And as somebody who used to ski uh, a lot, it really did capture kind of in the backcountry or when you're doing free riding, when you're not racing or not just doing the competition of what it is to actually ski or snowboard. It's just exploration. It's checking out different stuff. And there was a lot of collectibles. You could collect these different snowflakes or find these different challenge points that, you know, in this section that normally doesn't have slalom gates, we're going to put slalom gates and you have 45 seconds to get through them all. So there's like a, it's like a combination of a sandbox game, an action sports game, and a collect-a-thon, you know, kind of like uh, Donkey Kong 64 or Banjo-Kazooie. So those are all games that uh, are game styles that I enjoy. I really like sandbox games. I really like collectible games. And I, especially at the time, you know, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 had a big influence on a lot of people like me in our youth and caught it, caused us to buy a skateboard that we may or may not have gotten good at actually using. Um, but SSX3 was another one of those games that I just, as far as an action sports game, I just really enjoyed. And it's something that I can, I can play for a long time. I don't have an Xbox anymore or an Xbox 360, but out of all the stuff that I don't have anymore, I still have a physical copy of SSX3 just in case I ever want to pick up a console again. Nice. I like that a lot. I've got to say, I personally have never skied, never snowboarded, never done anything like that. I'd totally be up for it. I just never have. And yet, I massively got into these games because I just love them. They're so much fun to play. And it's really cool to hear that at least some part of the experience felt authentic to actually do in the sport itself that's really cool yeah it's um exploring was always one of the most fun parts of skiing like uh when i was really into skiing it was when i was in college and i lived in a triplex and there was eight of us total living between three basically connected apartments 
And I think six of us either skied or snowboarded. So every free day that some of us could go, you know, we got discounted ski passes to the local resort from being in college. Uh, They had a program together. And so we would all get ski passes. And then like every day, one of us was free, like at least two or three of us, if not a full carload or two, were going up to the mountain with a bunch of other people. And just like cruising through the trees and, you know, checking out runs that you'd never gone on before, trying to find different spots on runs or even with the ski resorts that we went to a lot, there were there were sections between runs that like you really had to kind of figure out a way to get from one run to another. And at the halfway point, there's like these little subsections that a lot of people didn't go to. So as you got better at skiing and you wanted to get away from where people already were, that's when you started finding out about like these local spots that you had to really know the area intimately to be able to get to consistently. And there are similar experiences in SSX3 where certain collectibles are in certain areas that you have to, you know, I got to go left at this tree and I got to take a right here and kind of go down this side of the face to get to this very specific spot. And I think that's where the similarities really draw the closest as far as exploration goes. But yeah, you're right with SSX three, because they went away from the uh, formula so far of just racing and just doing tricks on these certain tracks. That's when it opened up the ability to kind of cross over into how it felt to do real life exploration on a mountain. Well, that's really cool. Now, I mean, it's something uh, like we sort of discussed with one of my previous guests, my friend Zach, like a uh, real life friend of mine who came on the show. He he picked one of the skate games. I don't remember whether it was two or three as his pick. And one of the reasons behind it was, though obviously not literally, it does feel very akin to doing the actual skateboarding in real life, especially when you compare it to Tony Hawk's, which is something we mentioned at the time. So one thing I'm curious about based off that conversation in your pick here, do you think you would like SSX3 or the series in general as much as you do if you weren't already familiar with that activity in real life? Yeah, I think I would. And the reason for that is because I actually got into SSX before I got into skiing. So SSX3, uh, I think I was 18 at the time when we got into it. It was our last summer uh, home before all of us went to college, all my group of high school friends. And we were, you know, same friends that had uh, got us into Halo. Like we would go to his house every once in a while, like watch movies or hang out. And sometimes we would just hang out and play, pass the controller and play SSX3. And then I got into skiing heavily. Like I had skied a couple times, but two years after that, my dad bought me a pair of skis and then I got a pass. So it was a, a good two year period of actually having played and playing the video game before I really got into skiing. So I, th- I think that even without the similarities in the crossover, uh, because SSX3 came first, I, I think I would still have that pick. That's fair. And I mean, like I said, I've never done any of the activities myself, and I absolutely love those games. I'm probably going to be trying to find a copy of one not long after we finish recording this, to be entirely honest. <laughs> uh, so with SSX3, seeing as this is a game that 
you know, it's not really that alike to anything else that anyone has picked so far. What in particular with three other than the exploration side of it makes it a better pick than say SSX or Tricky? Or is it just purely down to just slight improvements throughout the series for you? For me, it was how they revamped their formula because uh, they still had tracks that you could race and they still had, you know, trick competitions like like the two previous games had. Um, adding in the exploration was a nice feature, but I think that the part that one of the things that I like in certain games is uh, not necessarily achievements for gamer points or whatever they called it on Xbox 360, but is. Uh, one of the best way I can describe it is uh, like accomplishing things that they put in the game to teach you how to get better. So they have different challenges in this game where when you're doing free riding, if you see a green, blue or red light, depending on the difficulty, you go into the light and then it says something like, oh, grab these two items. And, you know, you have to figure out what jumps to go off of to get them or get through this section without touching like one of them's like go through this entire course and only leave the ground for eight seconds and in a game that's all based on getting huge airs and doing these massive trips and stuff it's actually really hard to stay on the ground and so those are the types of challenges that i enjoy a game that has a lot of those is some of the smash brothers games um especially starting at melee and brawl is they had these i think brawl was the first one but it was a challenge board and it would give you a challenge or you would do a challenge um, for, let's say uh, you hit the sandbag this far in home run contest. And then it would reveal around it the four challenges because it was just a giant grid. And then you could see like, oh, to unlock that one, I have to do this. And I, I really like those kind of challenges because they add, even though you are playing the game, same game, um, you're looking at different ways to play it just to see what you can do. And so, and SSX3 has a lot of those um, that also are a lot of fun. And and that's kind of where it ties into, you know, like the Tony Hawk games, where it's like, do these 10 things on this map. And SSX3 has components of that, and it has components of different, you know, go through these gates, treat this course like a real slalom course, or stay on the ground for X amount of time. Those are challenges that I really enjoy, and some of them are really hard. So, you know, that obsession periods definitely contributes into when I get into one of those challenges and like, I know I can do this. Like, that's something that drives me to keep doing it. And maybe I'll spend two hours doing one stupid challenge, but it's something that when I accomplish it, I feel really good. And SSX3 has a lot of challenges that made me feel good. I like that. That's really cool. And I think a simple way to sum up what I'm hearing there is very much improving on the formula without betraying what makes the game good, which is all you can really hope for with the game. That That's really what you want at the end of the day. Any series, you just want that. Yeah, and, it, and, and they did it in such a good way with this game. And that's really the reason why even today, like if I... Like, I, I have SSX3, like I said, it's the only original Xbox title that I still own. And there are there have been days, like, especially when I unpacked it after we moved, where I went, kind of wish I had an Xbox, because I could see myself firing this up for a couple of weeks and having some fun. 
but um you know the the first two games were a lot of fun the racing was fun doing the tricks was fun and then in the second one like doing all the different uber tricks was really fun and you know they took that formula and they built based this third game off of that while also making like a backcountry which they hadn't done before and the backcountry levels uh and maps were really really good and then they did traditional racing and tricks on those and then you know the icing on the cake is the free roaming I think the last race that you do is from the very top of the third peak to the very bottom of the first peak. So they actually make you do the full run of the mountain as far as accomplishing the final race. Of course, you can free ride it as many times as you want, but I I just always thought it was cool that they didn't really stick to traditional levels. Like they had different peaks, peak one, peak two, and peak three, but it wasn't like peak two only did peak two stuff. Peak two did peak two stuff and peak one stuff. And so everything kind of started at one point and then everything extra that you got and unlocked built and added to the first thing. And it, that, that was also different from what a lot of those action sports games were doing because a lot of the levels were kept separate. Like in Tony Hawk, you, you couldn't go from one level to the next. And the fact that you could do that in this, you know, like I said, they took that already really fun formula and added this onto it and it just made it way better for me. That's really cool. And with the mention of Tony Hawk there, I don't think it was until, was it like Tony Hawk Underground, I think it was called, where they first gave you that sort of open world environment to play with, as opposed to yeah, individual so. levels. Yeah, but even then, it's a, a sort of like, this level is an open world. You can throw around as much as you want, you can do what you want, and then we'll move on to the next area sort of thing, which you know inevitably makes sense within those games. But there wasn't that interconnection, like you mentioned, with SSX three. Yeah, it, it's still one of the. I, there's a there is a speedrunner speedrunner named Daggy that does SSX speedruns of a few of the different games, and uh, <clears throat> his hundred uh, percent runs are for me just a, a blast to watch because there's. I mean, I never found all the stuff, all the collectibles and stuff. I I definitely tried, but. You know, watching him find him as fast as he can is is like a treat. Okay, I've got to ask, roughly what sort of time are you talking on a speedrun like that? I think it's about three hours. So that's like all collectibles, all races, all trick competitions, all of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's uh, finding everything, doing all the challenges that I talked about. Uh, Part of collectibles in the game are you can buy different outfits and stuff i don't think that that's part of the hundred percent i think it's all actual content as opposed to different cosmetics so similar to like within super metroid where we've got we all call it 100 percent, but it's a hundred percent item collection you know as opposed to say true completion where you literally have to set every flag in the game which you know it's not a common one for something like super metroid whereas with this that's that's kind of similar to what what he's got there in that it's a hundred percent collection and mission completion but it's not requiring you to do every tiny little thing in the game that you could possibly do yeah which would really just add in the at least for ssx3 would really just add pointless time because when you're free riding if you do a big trick like you get money for it so like you don't only collect money to unlock these cosmetics by winning the competitions or anything like that. 
you kind of just get money for playing the game, even if you're just screwing around. So all it would be is like an extra 15 seconds to navigate through all the menus and buy all the stuff, which would be extremely boring and pointless to add on. No, that's it. It's, it's about what's actually enjoyable to do within the game. To be honest, I might have to look that up because I'm getting a real Jones for SSX right now. <laughs> I'm going to have to find something similar to it on the PC. I don't know if Sean White snowboarding ever came over to PC, but that was a pretty good, especially for the, the free roaming. Um, I'm, of course, the, the tricks were more toned down into real life in Sean White snowboarding. Uh, which is another thing I thought SSX3, well, you know, all the SSX games did well, was even though there's these big ridiculous tricks that you're never, nobody's ever going to pull off in real life, the way that they built the maps made him feel like they belonged. It wasn't like a realistic mountain, and then you could do like a 1440 triple backflip, uh, you know, disconnect your board and spin it around like you're a ballerina dancer. Um, it was like this gigantic cliff that's like 50 feet that no but he would ever really be able to jump off. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like, I vaguely remember one, it may not be in SSX, it may be in something like Snowball Kids or another game, but where you basically have like an Olympic ski jump setup, and it's just go off, do the most ridiculous trick you can, <laughs> like a high school yeah. dance type deal. Uh, like a 1080 snowboarding, I think, did that. It was like oh, the big it air. Was, yes, it was 1080 snowboarding. That is definitely what it was. Oh man, that's another game I love. See, like I played so many snowboarding games, loved them all, never actually touched a real snowboard in my life. I've never, I've never snowboarded, um, and I don't, as far as I know, besides SSX on tour, I'm not really aware of a dynamic skiing game unless one came out after I stopped really playing. Because, like I said, with my the way that video games went, like I played SSX three on the same console as Halo, so that's where that happened, but. After my Xbox broke and I got a PC, I played League of Legends for like six years, and that's where things really changed for me. So, like, if something came out afterwards for a console, I definitely didn't play it or check out anything like it. <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, there's no sort of gap in my console history, as it were. Uh, I suppose Sega Saturn, but I'm not sure there's a great deal that I'm missing out on there. But <laughs> no, no, I, I'm very much the same. I. At least I don't know of any uh, game which has that sort of same dynamic to it with skiing involved as well. Uh, I've definitely played games where you've had to ski, but it's usually like a minigame type setup, if anything. Right, or Ski Free. That's everybody's go-to ski game most of the time. I can't honestly say I've ever heard of that. That might be the first game you've mentioned I've, I've never even heard of. Really? Ski Free was like one of the free includes on Windows, like way like Windows 95. And it was it was just the skiing game where you went off of jumps and like all you did was ski straight down. And then at the end of the mountain, this abominable snowman thing would come out and eat your skier. And it's actually kind of interesting that as somebody who never grew up with a Windows computer, like I just know about it from playing it at my cousin's house on thanksgiving or something like that like all afternoon okay i um, just googled it i i do actually know this game <laughs> as soon yeah, as i've seen it i'm like okay i know it yeah i do remember playing that one as well but uh yeah that that would have to be the only skiing based game that i know of other than you know like little flash game type things that may include it somewhere 
I'm gonna have to look into that because that'll be it'd be, it'd be cool to find something along those lines of a 1080 snowboarding or an SSX, but based around skiing or the combination of skiing and snowboarding, just to make it a little bit more interesting, as it were. Now we've we had a lot of fun talking about SSX. We've kind of covered the whole series. I think we'll leave it there because. I'm really wanting to play SSX now, and I don't want to keep talking about it because it's going to make me want to play it more. I'm going to be honest with you about this. Okay, but, that's uh, fair. <laughs> but no, lots of really good feedback on why you would have picked that game and what you love about it. And to be honest, it's just been a massive reminder of everything I love about it as well. So that's been a lot of fun for me personally. Now, before we go on to the final pick... Uh, one of the things that you also get to take onto the island with you is one album, one movie or book, and one luxury item. Now, before you actually tell me what they are, uh, mentioning a book has just reminded me of something I wanted to ask you. The name Android Dreams, is that a reference to the Philip K. Dick novel? Yes, it is. Um, it, it's... Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I read it for a literature class in high school, and I I really enjoyed it. I I wouldn't go as far to say that it like made me have some long you know relationship with sci-fi. Sci-fi and I are kind of hit or miss. Um, I did end up watching the director's cut of the first Blade Runner after I read the short story. I didn't see Blade, the new Blade Runner, and it wasn't because I. I'm some kind of purist about it and don't want to see something have a sequel like 20 some years later. It's just because I don't watch very many movies, but you know, uh, my name probably it wouldn't exist if I didn't get locked out of my first Twitch account and have my recovery email be an email. I can't remember the password to. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my original like gaming, well, not my original, but my 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 recent gaming uh, name that I had for a very long time was Mr. Bruce Keys, or Mr. Bruce Keys, however you want to say it. And it was because um, I did a radio show in college, and I wanted to come up. I didn't want to use my real name on the radio show, even though it didn't really matter. It was just college, like metal radio station. Uh, and my slot was from like 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Sunday nights. So it's like, you know, <laughs> like probably a really horrible window to get people to listen to metal unless they're like just raging and drunk on a Sunday <laughs> evening or something like that. But uh, so it, and at the time uh, I was really I had just really gotten into craft beer and trying a bunch of different craft beers. I worked at a liquor store Um and I also skied at the time. So I was sitting at the bar at the resort that we were at and they had a Corona uh, tin or tin tacker on the wall and it had a parrot with a Corona and it had two skis crossed and it just said Brewski on it, like B-R-E-W-S-K-I. And I thought about it and I kind of broke it down into the first name of Bruce and the last name of Keys. So my radio show became the Bruce Keys show, and I used to have it more separated. I went by that for a while for my radio show, and then I got a job selling beer for a distributor. And at the, uh, it was a small company; they didn't even have company emails, so they just said, "Yeah, you need to create a you need to create an email account for 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 work." 
Uh, and so I, I, he said, what, what do you, what are, what is your email address going to be? Cause they wanted to make sure it sounded professional enough. And I just said, oh, it's going to be Bruce keys at gmail.com. And the manager was like, are you sure that that sounds professional enough? Like basically telling me like, that's not professional enough. And I said, okay, how about Mr. Bruce? Keys? <laughs> and that's just stuck for a long time. But then, yeah, that was my original Twitch account name. And when I went to start streaming, I couldn't remember like my login information or something happened. Like I, my cash got cleared or something. I couldn't get logged in. And so I'm like, I guess I got to pick a different name. I was just like, oh, I like that short story. So I'll just say Android Dreams. So it, it, it's actually my first screen name story is like so much better than the one I'm using now. <laughs> but I, I think that Android Dreams is a really fun name. Like I like that people call me AD. Like it's very recognizable. People always reference the Philip K. Dick novel or Blade Runner or something. So it's uh, it's a little bit more relatable than my my first screen name that I used for a long time. I understand that. And I mean, we wouldn't have got to hear that story had I not felt the need to ask you about your name. I mean, I, I'm actually quite a big fan of Philip K. Dick and his stories. Uh, let's move back a little bit then, and let's go back onto the extra items you get to take onto the island with you. So, just a quick reminder, one album, one movie or book, and one luxury item. What are you taking with you? Okay, for a book, this one's pretty easy for me, and it has nothing to do with my name. Um, but my book choice would be Ender's Game. I read that book for the first time in high school. And uh, it was the first book that I read, like that I was so enthralled with that I read cover to cover, like basically in like a day or two, like people say that they do that with other books. And at the time, I had definitely not ever had that experience where I was so into a book that I just couldn't put it down. But that was the first book that that ever happened with. Um, and I it's the only book that I uh, went and sought out a hardback co uh, copy of, you know, everything else just like, oh, whatever, I have this book. This book I like so much. I even had for a long time uh, a borrower's copy where basically I had my hardbound copy and I had a paperback copy that anybody who said like, oh, I've never read that book. I would just be like, here you go, read it and give it back to me. And I don't think I have that. I think somebody ended up with it, which is fine because if they like the book enough to not give it back, then that's that's great. Uh, but that would definitely be my my book of choice. So I got a book, an album and a luxury item. Is that it? A luxury item. Yeah. I do just want to say on the book there, that is an absolutely brilliant idea. I've never done that myself, where having multiple copies of the book, so I have one to potentially lend people, because I have lent books to people, and in fairness, most of the people I've lent books to have been really respectful of them, but one or two people who I've lent books to, they've given it back, and I'm just sort of like, I, I gave you a book, what is this pile of paper that you've returned to me? <laughs> so... That's a really good idea, and I've definitely got some books that I would happily do that with. I learned the hard way because I, my the reason I did that was because my original, like I mean, for the most part, most people would give me back my book in fine condition as well. But I remember that my only copy at the time came uh, came back, and it would, had like spilled somebody had spilled something on it, and it barely opened and closed on some pages. So. Um, I tossed it and that was when I decided like, okay, I'm going to find a hardback version and I'm going to get a paperback version to lend out to people. 
No, I like that a lot. So let's go back a little bit then. You've also got one album and one luxury item. What are you taking? Uh, I'm going to go with the album first. And this was not, this was not an easy thing. I much like how I've gotten into different video games over the years and been obsessed with them for a period of time. That's also been something that happens with what I'm listening to. So going from, you know, pop punk and emo music in high school, them kind of evolving into metal. And then in college, I had a friend that got me into um, rap and hip hop. And then after college, I got it really into dance music. And then from there, got into chip tunes and some other things. And that's kind of where mostly where I'm kind of stuck still now is with dance music, chip tunes and a few other things. So there's like a lot of candidates, like 36 Chambers by Wu-Tang Clan is something that I can listen to cover to cover pick any day of the week. Um, there's a rap album called Mad Villainy, which is uh, Mad Villain is the duo of MF Doom and Mad Lib. And that's a really great rap album. If you've never heard it, listen to it because the sampling's amazing and the, the rhymes are really good. I actually listened to that today while I was cleaning the house and hadn't, hadn't put it on in a couple of years, probably. And it was still just as good as when I heard it. When I heard the first song that I'd ever heard on it, which was in the background of an episode of the boondocks. I think it was when uh, the main character, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, when he's fighting Bushido Brown, which is like Oprah Winfrey's bodyguard in the cartoon series. And they played this song called all caps. And it was the first mad villain song I'd ever heard. And I found out what it was online and I pulled up the album. And ever since that's been an album that I can also listen to cover to cover without any problem. There's a lot of really good dance music compilations and stuff that you could call an album. There's even a lot of good dance music albums uh, that I've gotten into over the years. But I think out of all those options, there's an album by the band Unearth, which is a, a melodic metal band. Um, and their album, The Oncoming Storm, which I don't remember if it's their second or their third album, but it was the first metal album that I really listened to because this was when I was transitioning between emo and screamo and you know, harder, you know, post-hardcore, a little bit harder rock and actually getting into metal was uh, The Oncoming Storm. And it's another album that to this day, you put it on, You li I can listen to it cover to cover. I know all the songs. I know all the drum fills. I know all the solos. And I'm not tired of it still. And when I go back to it every year or two or however often it pops into my mind, I can put it on and I can listen to it in one sitting and enjoy it every time. Okay. I mean, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. I do love some melodic metal. And much like yourself, I've got quite a wide variation in the music that I listen to. Uh, music is one of those things that everyone has such unique opinions of that, yes, there is, you know, musical theory arguments of why this is better than this or this isn't good music, this is bad music, but what you like is still very subjective and it's really cool to hear because like, I know there are a lot of people out there, but it's really cool to hear you say, you know, I was into this music, I'm into this music, I like this music, because not a lot of people do say it. You know, a lot of people go for the, oh, well, I'm really into rap music, or I'm really into this music. And through all of the different styles of music that you mentioned there, and then when you actually give us the album you pull out, 
a melodic metal album. It's just so like, <laughs> yeah. It's where did that come from? But I will definitely check that out though, because lovely some melodic metal. Let's move on from the album then, and your final thing then is your luxury item. I uh, my luxury item, which uh, would pre- be pretty beneficial on an island, is actually going to be a fishing pole. I, I do enjoy fishing. When I, I used to live in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about an hour from Aspen, uh, which is where I did a lot of skiing after college. Um, but I live within walking distance of the Colorado River. I could just walk from my house with my fishing pole down to the river after work almost every day during the summer and go fishing for a couple hours. I don't actually like fish that much, but if I'm on a desert island, I probably don't have a lot of choices. So at least I'll be also be able to eat something. Um, but yeah, hoping to get some fishing in this year, hopefully with some friends while everything's a little bit different, it might be a little harder, but it would not only benefit me, but fishing is a nice relaxing, like it's not even really about catching fish as much as it is about standing outside and just kind of hanging out. Oh, I like that pick. It's definitely the most sort of like functional pick that we've had so far. And I mean, I'm not big on fishing myself, but I did grow up with a grandfather who loved it, or two grandfathers who loved it in fact, used to go with them when I was a lot younger never would say I had a bad time apart from, you know, being an impatient child but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but I like it I like it a lot, and it it's it's something as well that gives you an additional activity that you can do even like you say, if it's just having a relax with the line in the water, just chilling, waiting to see if something happens. Which, as you say, is 95% of what fishing actually is. Mm-hmm. I mean, fishing went through a lot of cycles for me. It was, you know, my dad and my grandpa both loved fishing. You know, we had four-wheelers and stuff, so we would load the four-wheelers up and four-wheel to a lake somewhere. Uh, and then, you know, and after we went, I went, got into college, went cup fishing a couple times. Fishing was really just drinking, but it was still fishing. And then when I was in uh, Glenwood, like I had mentioned, I lived by myself. I didn't, I had friends, but my job and their, the jobs that they had, cause I, I was the one selling the beer, but they were the ones working in the restaurants. And that's basically how I met everybody when I would move to a different city to do this job. And so our, our schedules didn't line up to really hang out very well unless I wanted to go eat while they were working. Um, so fishing became a nice, like alone activity that I could do every day, especially like, cause some of my other activities that I would do by myself were like, um, longboarding, uh, and in a mountain town, like I lived at the very top of a hill that just went like straight down. And like, I remember the first week I was like, Oh cool. I could longboard this. And I got like a block in and I was like, I'm going to die if I, keep going because this is really steep so <laughs> fishing kind of became my like off season from skiing activity there is definitely a number of places near where i live and i mean very very close to where i live where if you are to start longboarding down everything you either better get good or you might die uh hills are something we've got in spades down this way <laughs> but Let's move on from this now. We've had your extra items, as it were. On to your fourth and final pick, please. 
Okay. Uh, my fourth and final pick I landed on, and I say landed because this was another really tough. I wanted I wanted a puzzle game. The, the two genres that I played or play a lot that I was kind of stuck between were sandbox games and puzzle games. And ultimately, because I was kind of like, well, maybe like Minecraft. I played a lot of Minecraft. It's something that you could do infinite stuff in. But I kind of with those games, I kind of realized like I'm on a desert island. Like if I want to do sandbox game stuff, I should I'm probably way better off just doing it in real life because then I'll probably survive a little bit better, too. But um, <laughs> so I landed on puzzle games because I've always I've always liked puzzle games, especially like infinite puzzle games like Tetris um, or uh, Kirby's Avalanche is another good puzzle game. Luminous is another good puzzle game that I played a lot of growing up. And I think Kirby's Avalanche would be my other pick over the other puzzle games. So Kirby's Avalanche would be my fourth pick. Okay, so now the Kirby series is definitely something I'm familiar with, but this particular game, I... Well, other than the fact that it's Kirby's Avalanche, so it's got some sort of involvement with the character Kirby. No idea about the game at all. So tell us why this game and give us a bit of detail about the game itself. All right. So um, if you've never heard of Kirby's Avalanche, there's a couple other things that you might have played or heard of. Uh, One of them is Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine for Sega Genesis. It's basically Kirby's Avalanche, but with Sonic characters instead. Okay. and I think the more common reference to this ty- uh, style, excuse me, of puzzle game, it'd be uh, Poyo Poyo, but it's the one where it, with the, blo- the falling blobs and you have to connect colors of four and then those four disappear and then everything drops down and you create comb- combos of groups of four or more based on how you build your blobs. Right, okay. I vaguely remember... One of my brothers having, I think it was called Street Fighter 2 Puzzle Fighter when we were younger, which is probably the most similar thing I can think of that I would have played to this, to those, or at least that I remember playing to what you've just described there. So, like I say, tell us a bit about the game and why it's your fourth pick. Um, it's just a game. I have a, with puzzle games, I, when I playing puzzle games there's especially luminous i remember having this almost problem where it the sessions would be two to three hours long and i wouldn't like do anything like i i would play for so long that it would be like dark and then it would be or light and then it would be dark and i would be like really disoriented when i was done but um kirby's avalanche has a single player like just an infinite mode where you just see how many combos you can get and see what score you can get and the the way that you build, you know, your shapes, because it doesn't have to be four straight. It, they just have to be connected. So it can be like an L or it can be like a square or a T or however you want to describe it. If you want to look at it kind of in the way that Tetris pieces are lined up. But Kirby's Avalanche also has a campaign. Um, and it's actually a very challenging uh, and rewarding campaign. And it's one of those that as as I went back and played games that I would would had played in the past, like, you know, every once in a while I go, oh, I want to play this again. It was always a campaign that even though I had beat it a couple of years ago, when I would come back to it, it was hard still. Like, you know, the peak of that campaign to be able to beat it 
isn't something, isn't a skill level that stays with you if you don't play for a couple of years. And the other thing I like about the campaign is that it's, it's very fair about what it does. So like the computer AI doesn't get any advantages that you can't have. Like it gives you, you get you both, both players, you and the computer get the same exact combination of colors or different blobs that come at you. It never has RNG based on you got one thing and the opponent got this. And then it just all comes down to how both people play it out. So the the game never did anything like there's no like rubber banding like you get in Mario Kart where the game just constantly does something unfair that makes it hard. It was just hard because they made the AI just really good at the game and you had to be better than that level of good to be able to finish the campaign. Okay, now that's definitely sounding pretty good and I massively see the value of a good puzzle game, especially one that you enjoy and if it's got some sort of infinite mode, great stuff. But I, the value of a puzzle game in the situation that we're describing with the desert island is definitely higher, in my opinion. So with this game, then, uh, is it one that you've played a great deal of? Is it just one that when you play it, you get hooked and you keep going and going and going? What about this game draws you to it? It's a game that I played a lot of when I was growing up. Every once in a while, you'd come back to it. Even, you know, I have Xbox and Halo and I can play this, these different games. But it's like I just when I would come back and play it, I would get hooked on it. Um, and like I think the campaign was a big contributor to that, because like I said, you would come back to it thinking like, oh, I beat this before. I'll just beat it again. I'll, I'll just pop it in and beat it. And then like a week later, you're still struggling with the, the actual boss of the campaign because you're like, oh, yeah, this is really hard. I forgot how hard this was to actually complete this game. Well, that's good. And I mean, like you said previously, with these style of games, particularly puzzle games, they have sort of like their own style. And if you're not in the rhythm of that style, it can be very hard to get up into the more difficult challenges on them. I mean, you see it with like top Tetris players. We can all clear, you know, plenty of lines of Tetris when it's going slow, it's relaxed, it's easy. As soon as it starts picking up that pace, starts slamming pieces down on you, it starts going, oh, well, uh, uh. whereas if you're playing all the time, the speed doesn't really bother you. It just becomes, you know where you want what piece to go, no matter what comes out, which is the big difference, I think, for it. Yeah, and this this game has both. Um, I mean, it does have varying speeds and creates a sense of panic, like because that you know it's similar to Tetris, where uh, or at least you know it's similar to Tetris, where as you get farther along, the speed gets faster. But the the way that ca the campaign would work was that there's basically section, like it doesn't tell you that there's sections, but you can recognize that there are sections of you know you. You basically play this puzzle game against an AI and you have to play against like 16 different characters of the Kirby universe to beat it. And like the first four all have like a base starting speed and they the games ramp up the longer that they, or the speed ramps up the longer that those individual games go. And then after those four, it's a, a higher starting base speed. And by the time you get to the end of it, the ramp up from the last battle, like the starting point is already really intense, but as it ramps up the speed, it gets it gets really hectic on those last couple couple battles. 
I, I can imagine. I mean, just just from my familiarity with Tetris, and again, this is sounding a lot like the the Street Fighter puzzle fighter game that I remember playing, which was, you know, you drop the blocks, match the four, destroy the block. You then drop whatever blocks onto your opponent, and the idea is to fill up their screen before they fill up your screen. I mean, is it always the same thing, or is that infinite mode more like that Tetris time, and that's the difference between the two modes? Yeah, that's the difference. So the the infinite mode is just you play through and see how many you know stat make your stack and get your combos, and the speed climbs up uh, as far as how fast your pieces fall down. The campaign, or even the versus mode, if you play it with another person, is your combos add up. So like if you get a a standard like a combo of two, like one group into a second group, you create, you give the other person uh, junk blobs. And they're not junk like in Dr. Mario where it's just a random color that they can use. It's actually a, cl- a clear blob that has no color association. It completely blocks uh, any connection at that point. And the way that you get rid of them is you make a grouping of four that's touching one of the junk blocks and then it will also disappear. But the more combinations that you do and a combination isn't like if i have if i have two sets of four that go off at the same time that doesn't count as a combo it has to be one combo or one set of four or more goes off and then the resulting shift of the rest of the pieces give you another match of four or more and then after that those clear if you get another one then it it increases the number of junk boulders that your opponent gets and that's why they call it you know, that's why they called it Kirby's Avalanche, because if you get like a max combo or some wildly big combo, it's going to drop a full half screen of junk blocks onto the other person, just creating an avalanche of of junk for them to clear out. Yeah, this is definitely the same basic premise of the Street Fighter Puzzle Fighter game that I, I'm familiar with. And I think this style of game has so many different versions that I think almost anybody's going to have one that they're familiar with, which is great because it gives you, you know, once you start realizing what we're talking about, it gives you a much greater understanding of the other game. Like, I, when we started this, I was like, Kirby's Avalanche, I, I can't even think of it. I've heard of that one. I mean, I've never seen it. What is it? And then as you start describing the game, before you even mentioned it there, it clicks in my head. I know why it's called Kirby's Avalanche now. You know, it's mm-hmm. and yeah, and I I played a lot of Puzzle Fighter in college because I had a, a neighbor that was like he saw me playing Luminous I think one day and he was like Have you ever played Puzzle Fighter? And I was like No. And we found it on Xbox Live Arcade and we started playing it and it's a lot of fun too. I don't remember the intricacies of the game as well as I remember with Kirby's Avalanche, but yeah, it's that's another really fun game though. There's a lot of good. This was hard. The puzzle one when I decided like, well, I should probably bring a puzzle game. Tetris. I love Dr. Mario. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched competitive Dr. Mario or if you'd ever be into that sort of thing. But I really enjoy watching competitive Dr. Mario of all things. Um, It's pretty exciting when you get two really good people playing each other. But yeah, Luminous is another really good one. yeah, I played a little bit of Street Fighter, Puzzle Fighter. I think it was the the brand of Puzzle Fighter that I ended up playing. Like I say, it's definitely one of those styles of games that there's so many different variations that it's so easy to have come across one. And from what you just mentioned there, 
I can't honestly say that I've ever watched competitive Dr. Mario or anything like that. But I could definitely see it appealing to me. But I feel like it's a rabbit hole I don't want to go down. Uh, <laughs> very much like this, this style of game. Because when I start playing it, I get into it. And then I want to have higher scores. And then I want to beat this. And then I want to beat that. And I get very drawn into it. And it then takes something like the release of a new game that I'm super excited about to go, right, I'm going to put that to one side, go play this game. And then that's it. The Puyo Puyo game, whatever it may be, is gone. Like, I I won't remember about it for years to come, potentially. Yep, that's that's a really good way. And I think that's what I was getting at with my description of me at the beginning is a hermit who gets stuck inside or gets stuck in obsession periods with hobbies is because the thing that that makes me stop playing a game generally isn't boredom or burnout. It's something else. Something else comes along and I get just as excited about that thing as I was when I started playing whatever I'm playing right now. And that's what derails me onto some other hobby for a while or some other game for a while. Definitely. And I think even when you you know gave that description of yourself at the start, I loved the description. It was really, really well thought out. You know, for nine words, it's a lot of information to give. And one of the things in particular was when you finished, my instant thought was, oh, I definitely know that experience 100%. (laughs) And yeah, much like yourself, I very rarely get burnt out or bored of games unless it's just a game that I don't particularly like anyway, in which case I'm not going to keep playing it. I definitely, though get distracted by something else and then that game gets swept to the wayside a good example for me at least would be fallout 4 which i had for about a year and a half two years before i finished it even though i was basically in the end game the first week i had it because i don't remember specifically what but i got distracted by something else forgot about the game and then it was like a year or so later and I was like oh I never finished that I think I want to play that again and yeah like it's not the only example loads throughout my life and it sounds like you have exactly the same thing going on in many instances yeah I definitely do and I actually it makes me want to ask you a question about when you come back to something because one of the things I struggle with especially when it comes to uh, action RPG games uh, like Legend of Zelda, especially like Breath of the Wild uh, or like the bigger Wind Waker, I had this problem with too, uh, or even Majora's Mask, which would be I would get along in a game so far. And then when I would get distracted, I would eventually I might come back. And when I would come back, one of my biggest struggles was starting over. I always started over because I would always go, I don't remember what I was doing. I don't remember what my objective is. So I'm just going to start over. So when you come back to a game, are you the kind of person that can dig into where you were, or do you also start over in this situation? To be honest, it very much depends on the game. Like, with Fallout 4, it was very easy to me just slip back into the game. But I would also say with Fallout 4, I find that an extremely simplistic action RPG. I feel like a lot of the expansive detail that made me love the Fallout series to begin with, from the original all the way to the first few 3D ones, 
I feel like a lot of that was lost, which made it easier. Um, but then, for example, you've got something like The Witcher 2, which, again, exactly the same thing. Played all the way up to this point, got distracted by something, came back later to finish it. And I, I always try, always try to play it first. But that was definitely one of the games that instantly had me going... Uh, no, I'm going to have to restart this. I don't remember what I'm doing, <laughs> what I have done, what I need to do. You know, it's... Yeah, so it's very dependent on the game for me. My attachment to the series can have a big effect on that as well. Uh, okay. Like, with Fallout New Vegas is a good example, because I, I go back to play that quite regularly. That's one I can literally drop into an old save and just go from wherever I am, doesn't matter, won't have any problems, doesn't matter how I've built my character, I know what I want to do, I'll be absolutely fine. But it's not something I'd say is common with games, I'm definitely more likely to end up restarting than being able to continue on with it. Okay. Are there any you can think of where you have come back to a game later and just been able to drop straight back in and go straight on from where you were? Let's see. I've done it a few times in Minecraft, because, but I think inevitably, with a lot of the games that I'm playing like this, I there there if especially if there's like a skill tree or with Minecraft, how creative or how different the different seeds are. Some of the inspiration to start over isn't only because I don't remember what I was doing, but it's also because I can also play the game differently than I did before. Which you know that's a nice quality that a game has when you can replay it because you want to experience it in a different way. I think maybe like Dead Space might be a good example, but that's because it's very linear. You can only wander around the rooms incorrectly in Dead Space so many times before you eventually get it right. So that's why it's a little easier for me to do that. When when it comes to open world, more open world style games, especially more modern like Sandbox, like Minecraft, Terraria, Mario Odyssey, even to a point, I usually just start over because I want to with Mario Odyssey, it's usually like, I don't really remember what I did before, so I kind of want to experience it again. That's fair. I mean, definitely very sim- similar sentiments for myself with all of that. So, good to know and good question. So, thank you for asking that. That was a very interesting thing to have to think of on the spot, particularly because I knew there would be examples of games where I had gone back in and just carried on as it were, but it's not super common, like I say. So, we've I guess really come to the end of the show as it were but before I do wrap up I would want to ask you are there any games coming up that have got you excited um I they're not coming out they're already out but my current goal with Super Metroid is to get under or to 52 minutes so under 53 minutes um and and it's really kind of a lofty goal because i think that as long as i've played the randomizer i can definitely sub 50 super metroid but i'm not interested in grinding it that hard at the moment so my next endeavor after that super metroid speedrun accomplishment is actually going to be to play through some of my backlog of games that i haven't been as diligent with since i've been kind of distracted by super metroid or maybe a couple other games so I'm really excited to start playing some stuff on the Switch. Um, I got Breath of the Wild uh, before I left for this trip to go to Malaysia because I was like, I've got like this 30 hour commute from the United States to Malaysia. I've got, I'm going to have all this time to play the Switch. 
and then you're on a plane and you're it's just so it's easier to sit there and watch movies and fall asleep than it is to be focused on a video game for a long period of time where you have to do problem solving so i played maybe like two hours of breath of the wild and then didn't really play it very much like while we were in another country or when we came home and it, the the switch has just kind of been something that i got and i like a lot of the games and i get excited about it but i never really see them through so my next step is to to see through some of these games like Luigi's Mansion 3 and Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild. So I'm, I'm very excited. And I I might even get into uh, a little bit of Animal Crossing. That is a newer game that I am kind of interested in. I do like sandbox, like busy, busy work style games like that. So I'll probably check that out too. But yeah, it's really just playing some Switch games is what I'm excited about. I will say that I hope you thoroughly enjoy Breath of the Wild and Mario Odyssey. I know I did for definite. Um, Luigi's Mansion 3, I need to pick that up and play that because it's definitely one of those games that I'm excited for myself. It's a really, like, the music is really good. The way that they do the lighting is really cool. Like, it's a really beautiful game. But I I enjoy it. I I did enjoy it when I was playing it, like, on Christmas Day. But like I said, I just got distracted by something else eventually. (laughs) Well, that's how it goes. I mean, one of the things I had for Christmas off my girlfriend was Pokemon Sword. And exactly the same. I started playing it, enjoyed playing it when I was playing it Christmas. Got a couple of hours in and got distracted by something else. Haven't been back to it yet. Uh, So, yeah, another example of getting distracted and forgetting to get back to it uh i am gonna say we're gonna wrap the show up here thank you so much for joining me android dreams this has been so much fun really really fun chat to have with you here um one quick thing anything you want to big up that you've got coming up do you want to you know put your twitch stream out there your title i believe it's just android underscore dreams yeah yeah, so if you want to watch me play some Switch eventually, or possibly, I'm I'm like 43 seconds from my goal at Super Metroid, so I'm hoping that maybe even with the holiday tomorrow, I can get that one knocked out. But um, if you want to check me out, um, it is twitch.tv slash android underscore dreams. You'll see some Super Metroid. You'll see, you might see me, see if I can bring down my Zelda one time again. But that grind is... I don't know. Sometimes it's the grind that's more intimidating than actually playing the game when it comes to speedrunning. So that that might not happen for a little while. Um, but yeah, I, play, I just play a lot of stuff casually besides speedrunning Super Metroid. Um, you know, you might see me fire up Minecraft or Terraria or something every once in a while or Rocket League or something like that. For the most part, it'll be Super Metroid. But yeah, please stop by and check me out. I don't have a schedule. I just kind of on whenever I feel like it. I also just want to give a shout out to my wife. Um, who's very supportive of my hobby because I don't think it's easy to be married to a gamer if you're not a gamer. Um, It might not be something that you can really understand why it's so important. So I'm just glad that she, if she doesn't understand why it's so important, that she at least lets me carry on with it. So shout outs to Mrs. Android Dreams. And again, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to hear the episode and We'll talk to you later. To anyone listening, have a good one. Thanks very much, and bye now. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get in contact with the show, maybe you've got a question you want to hear asked, or you'd like to suggest or be a future guest for the show, 
maybe you just want to keep up with what's going on with the podcast or my life in general, you can find me on social media at YLIGP on Twitter, at YLIG underscore podcast on Instagram, and the Your Lives in Gaming podcast group on Facebook, or drop me an email to yourlivesingaming at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening.